Good morning, church family. Thank you so much for tuning in to our online service. Uh, I look forward to the day uh, where we don't have these anymore and you can, can come and be here with us. But in the meantime, uh, so happy to be able to worship together still in some sort of semblance in this uh, difficult time that we're going through. Uh, we are in 1 Thessalonians again this morning. We're actually going to be in just the first part of verse 10. Uh, but I would like to read verses 9 and 10 together for our scripture reading this morning. Would you uh, read God's word with me? I hope you've got your Bibles out and you are following along um, with the word of God as we preach it. Here's what the precious and errant infallible word of God says. It says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you thanks. We thank you already for the work you've done in preparing our hearts to hear this, your word. Uh, we thank you for those who are listening to this. Um, Father, we pray that they have already um, engaged in singing your word and reading your word, and Lord, that their hearts are prepared to hear uh, this word. Lord, as we open um, your word this morning, would you um, consider, uh, Father, helping us learn what it is you would have us to hear? Lord, we pray as needy children who are pleading you uh, to meet us with your grace this morning, to open our eyes and our ears, to help us to understand, uh, to enlarge our hearts for, uh, for you to allow us to keep our eyes on Christ and to help us walk by your spirit in all things that you might be honored and glorified through this body of believers at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Father, we pray, um, Lord, I pray on the outset uh, for forgiveness. Father, I have neither prayed persistently nor fervently enough. So I pray for forgiveness. I pray that by your grace and mercy that you would meet with us in spite of my own neglect, that you would convict us of sin, that you grant us grace to respond in a way that honors you and honors your holy and inspired word. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you recall last week, we saw that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, really all the way to the end of uh, chapter 3, Paul is explaining his earnest desire to go and be with the Thessalonians because there was a real danger present that the tempter might tempt them somehow to abandon their faith. So Paul was deeply and profoundly concerned and compelled to action. Remember, in sending Timothy, and praise be to God, he received uh, back from Timothy a report that they continued in the love, the faith, and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in verse 9, he asked this rhetorical question, how can we thank God significantly or sufficiently for the joy that we feel for you, the Thessalonians? 
Verse 10 that we're studying today actually belongs to verse 9. Verse 9 is the independent clause. It stands alone when Paul says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? And verse 10 explains the context <clears throat> excuse me, in which this thanksgiving occurs where he says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. That is, how can we possibly thank God sufficient, su sufficiently excuse me, for the joy we feel before you, the Thessalonians, as we go before God, exceedingly praying night and day that we might see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And so the big idea here is really, really simple. I know I had a long big idea last week. This week, it's simple. Two words. Prayer matters. Prayer matters. When we actually consider what Paul is saying in this context, the conviction that we should have beyond any shadow of a doubt is that prayer matters. But here's why this sermon won't be five minutes. Uh, here's why we're not ending it right there. Because I just really explained what the first half of verse 10 means. Because prayer matters, but why it won't be five minutes is, do we really understand that? Do we really understand that? Do we really share that conviction with Paul? Why is it then that we struggle to pray so much? Well, I've come up with a couple of reasons why I believe we struggle to pray. Uh, and here they are in no specific order. Here are the reasons why your pastor believes we struggle to pray. And please, uh, feel free to engage anytime this week with some of your difficulties that you might experience if I don't cover yours. First, uh, I believe we struggle to pray because of our experience. Our experience. The, the first, uh, the experience of our prayer life actually tempts us to come to the conclusion that prayer isn't all that important. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is I think many of us feel like we've prayed time and time again. We've prayed over and over again, and yet our prayers weren't answered. We've earnestly pleaded with God about this situation or that situation, only to have it go from bad to worse. Or maybe as C.S. Lewis wrote in his A Grief Observed, we feel this way. But to go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. That was C.S. Lewis's experience when he observed grief and the loss of his wife, and many of us have experienced something similar to this. We prayed for healing, and no healing came. We prayed for repentance, and the brother or sister didn't repent. We prayed for salvation and the family member continued to reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We prayed and too often our perception was God wasn't listening or God doesn't care. Now I, I know no one listening to this is, is comfortable hearing that, but I think unconsciously, uh, subtly, that does work against that other conviction that says prayer matters. 
prayer is significant, that we should pray. And so I think a reason we struggle to pray is because of our experience. Another reason I believe we struggle to pray is our theology. I think our theology can often lend its times to uh, lend at times for us to be a struggle to pray to this end. This is my conviction. It's the excuse I most often use. Not consciously. I don't tell myself not to pray because of my theology, but at the end of the day, my theology is, is, is the thing that's undermining my commitment to prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, we're unapologetically biblical on our understanding of God's sovereignty, God's omniscience, and God's omnipotence. We know that the scriptures teach that. We know in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, that the scripture, uh, we know what the scripture means when the Bible declares, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Uh, we make no attempt to qualify the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115, 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. <clears throat> we understand that the Lord is able to do all of his holy will. So if God knows the end from the beginning, if God does whatever he pleases, what do my prayers matter? We struggle to pray because sometimes uh, our theology Third, many of us actually struggle with prayer because of our ability. We struggle with prayer because of our ability. What I mean by that is our ability to get things done on our own. Because of our ability to seemingly accomplish our goals without prayer, why take the time to pray when I can accomplish the same without taking time to pray? We really live our lives according to the bumper sticker that most of us despise. Uh, God is my co-pilot. Yet when, when it comes to our prayer lives, that's how we often act. We have control of our lives. We do all that we want to do. And yet when we hit a bump in the road or we come to a rough patch, we just throw up a prayer to our co-pilot so he can help us. And then we say, okay, I got it from here. Thank you very much. It's too often our mentality and it undermines our commitment to prayer. So if your fundamental conviction is that you have to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps or get her done, then you probably aren't spending too much time seeking the face of God in prayer. Our worldview would be the fourth reason we don't pray like we should. Our worldview. Most of us have grown up in a naturalist worldview. A naturalist worldview means that the material universe is all that there is. We know that that's not true, and yet many of our presuppositions are still tainted by that belief that this material universe is all that there is. Everything that we experience is because of good old cause and effect. So even though we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it is really challenging us for us to grasp the reality that's represented there. For instance, in the book of Revelation, we know that reality exists somehow out there, but in our day and, and, and age, in our day-to-day -day lives, we live as if we're almost completely unaware of it. 
You just think about what's expressed in the book of Revelation. If, if you were convinced that this war is not against flesh and blood, but against dark powers and dominion and the dark world, I think a lot of us would spend certainly more time in prayer. Finally, I'm guessing the one that will probably resonate with most of us and our reasons why we struggle to pray will be this last one, and that is our lifestyle. Our lifestyles. We are busy. We're distracted. We have 30 hours of stuff to get done every single day, and so we often fail to pray. But you know, at the end of the day, it is my contention that all of these can be boiled down to one root cause on why we don't pray, and that is unbelief. Call it what you will. They're all just flowers on one plant, and the root of that plant is unbelief. Our experience tempts us to doubt the effectiveness of prayer. Our theology tempts us to doubt the importance of prayer. Our ability tempts us to doubt the necessity of prayer. Our worldview tempts us to doubt the legitimacy of prayer. And our lifestyle tempts us to doubt the reasonableness of prayer. We don't believe that prayer matters. And at the end of the day, that's why we pray as little as we do. Because we aren't truly convinced that it matters. That prayer is powerful and effective. And so this morning, we just consider Paul's example that challenges our misconceptions at every level. Okay, look at verse 10. He says, night and day, praying exceedingly. This is actually the second time he's said something like this. You remember back in chapter 1, in verse 2, he starts by saying this. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Here's the question this morning. What did Paul understand that we don't? Why did Paul pray exceedingly night and day? Because either Paul is expressing through his writing the actual state of affairs, or he's just throwing up lip service to this. And I'm inclined here to take the Apostle Paul at his word, one, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this, but two, I believe he understood something that we don't. And so why did Paul plead with God exceedingly night and day? It's because Paul believed that prayer matters. He believed that prayer matters. And so I want to go back through each of our excuses and each of our struggles and see how they applied to the Apostle Paul. First, Paul was not deterred by his experience as we are. I say this because Paul's praying seemingly increased, not decreased, as his prayers weren't answered. Do you remember last week, Paul said he tried time and again to get to the Thessalonians. He most earnestly desired to see them, and yet Satan hindered him. And so he just gave up on prayer. No. He says we pray. It's a present participle. We are praying, praying exceedingly night and day that we might see your face. 
See, not seeing the Thessalonians didn't deter him from prayer. It actually increased his prayer. He prayed with more earnestness, more persistence. So at the time of the writing of this letter, Paul was still pleading with God to see the Thessalonians face to face. He wasn't deterred by his experience, but nor was Paul deterred by his theology, by his understanding of God's sovereignty, omnipotence, and omniscience. It is Paul, after all. Paul's the one who wrote that God works things, all things according to the counsel of his will. And yet, we don't find any other New Testament author who pins more prayers on behalf of his people than Paul. Paul was a man of prayer and his theology didn't hinder his prayer. I'm convinced it actually caused him to pray as he did. Paul prayed to God fervently because Paul was convinced that God was willing and able to answer. It was because God was sovereign that Paul prayed. I've often heard arguments against the Reformed faith because why even bother praying if God is sovereign, omnipotent, and omniscient? Well, that knife cuts both ways. Why pray if he's not? Why would you pray to a God who actually can't save the person you're praying for? Who can't bring about the change you desire because he's so worried about transgressing man's will that his hands are tied. Uh, Paul prays because he knows that's not the case. He knows that God has the power, the ability, and willingness to bring about what it is that Paul prays for. Richard Pratt states it well. He says, there is no tension or inconsistency between the reality that God is sovereign over all things and the fact that prayer is effective. Just as God has ordained eating as a means by which hunger may be satisfied, so he has ordained prayer as a means by which events may come to pass. There is no tension here. There's no inconsistency Paul was not deterred by his theology, nor was Paul deceived by his ability. Paul understood that all of his natural ability was worth nothing if it was not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Prayer was his primary resource for relying on the true and living God. You know, one of my, my pet peeves from, from our kids uh, is often uh, that our kids ask us to do things for them that they can do for themselves, right? Mom, will you wipe my hands? Mom, will you walk me back to bed? Mom, will you help me clean my room? Dad, will you help me find mom, right? It's true. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves, the facts that they ask us to do things for them that they can do. And as they grow and mature, we have to help them realize, don't ask other people to do for you that which you can do for yourself. It's not a good habit to develop. But listen, church family, this is not the case with the Lord. There's nothing you can do apart from God. And Paul knew that he couldn't do anything without God. God never responded, seriously, Paul, you don't really need me for this one. Can't you just go ahead and do this on your own? Paul understood that we are always, uh, at every point, dependent on God for all things. There is nothing too trivial or too petty for which we can go to God. It's not unbiblical, nor is it silly, 
If I ask the Lord to help me brush my teeth in a way that honors him, it may seem silly, but my heart, as new as it is, is still tempted to go back to the old ways that if I'm left on my own for even but a moment, I will sin against the Lord. Paul was not deterred by his ability, but he certainly, certainly wasn't deterred by his worldview. There's actually very little correspondence to this point. On the last three points, Paul likely would have been sympathetic to our struggle, but at this point, Paul would have probably scratched his head. A naturalistic worldview? Paul would have rejected it outright. It would have been laughable. Ironically, a naturalistic worldview would have been identified by Paul as the work of the devil himself. Paul, after all, wrote that Satan hindered him from visiting the Thessalonians. Paul's worldview would have compelled him, not hindered him to pray. Ephesians 6.18, he gives this advice to the Ephesians in the midst of the context they're facing. He says, praying always with the prayer, uh, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. That's Paul's conclusion. That's his answer to the church at Ephesus who are facing the real threat, not of flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and the darkness of this age. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Well, finally, Paul's lifestyle didn't hinder him from praying either. Now, before you just immediately jump in and argue that Paul had more free time than us, I want to bring your attention back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Look at what the text says. Paul says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. See, we're tempted to think that life was so simple back then. I mean, they just had so much free time. I'm not going to get to the intricacies of the culture this morning, but I will remind you that unlike our day and age where we're able to store up resources, they worked daily just to eat that day. I'm willing to bet that Paul put in as many hours working and ministering as any person listening to this, yet he still found time to pray exceedingly. Now, I'll admit that Paul didn't have merely as many distractions today. Uh, There were distractions, but there was no Facebook, no sports, no HGTV, no games, no texting, no movies, etc. But here's my contention. I can't prove it, but I'll say it anyways. My contention is that if Paul lived in our time, I'm convinced he would have been just as diligent about prayer as he was in his time. Here's why. It wasn't just a matter of convenience for the apostle Paul to pray. It was a necessity. He had to. Because Paul believed that prayer matters. There's no other explanation. Just look at our verse again in verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Uh, By the way, that word praying, it's not the normal Greek word 
that's used for pray here. It's actually a rare word. It's only used six times. The word means to plead, to implore. It's stronger even than pray. He is pleading with the Lord. He is imploring the Lord to make a way for him to come to the Thessalonians. It's a prayer that flowed from the heart. That was committed to what he was asking for. It's like a child who pleads with his mother as they stand in the checkout line for a candy bar. That's the pleading and imploring of Paul before his God that he might see the Thessalonians' face again. And in case the pleading and imploring is not strong enough, Paul adds here that they were praying exceedingly. They pleaded exceedingly. Again, the Greek is helpful here with this word. Paul uses the adverb that's translated exceedingly. It's one word, but he uses it in a way to communicate the highest form of comparison possible. So, most exceedingly, we pleaded as earnestly as possible. In other words, there was no way that Paul and his companions could have pleaded with more earnestness than they did. Paul's communicated the intensity of their prayers. They didn't just plead. They pleaded with the utmost sincerity uh, and gravity. They pleaded with God as though their ability to help the Thessalonians actually depended on the prayers. Do you hear what I'm saying? This isn't just your average prayer meeting. They're pleading, imploring with the utmost earnestness. It's as though they believe their prayers were actually going to make a difference. It's actually as though he believes that God is going to move because of his prayers. And if that's not strong enough, what else does he say? Praying exceedingly night and day. It doesn't mean just continuously, both in the night and the day. It's an idiom. He means consistently, regularly, on a regular basis. It's even more intense than that. In the the Greek, the normal word, it's verb, subject, object. Okay, The normal word order there is verb, subject, object. If you want to intensify something, however, you move it toward the beginning of the sentence. The closer it is to the beginning, the more emphasis it has, which is why the sentence actually literally says, night and day with the utmost earnestness praying. The the persistence and and fervency of the prayer here, it's emphasized. Paul is pleading with the Lord, and the only possibility is that he actually believes that his prayer matters that the Lord is able and willing to respond. It's like Paul understood the parable of the persistent widow that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18. Listen to this parable. I hope you know it well. If not, please listen. Luke 18 verse 1, it says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and never lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man, Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her continual coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, will he really find faith on the earth? The point is not that God is an unjust judge here, obviously. But the point is, if a widow is able to persistently get an unjust judge to give her what she wants, how much more will a good, holy, righteous, gracious, and just God respond to his people? So pray and don't lose heart. Don't give up. Paul learned that lesson. He prayed and he didn't lose heart. He persistently and fervently prayed to God. This is what our verse teaches us. And and listen, though we may never fully understand all the intricacy of how this works, this text teaches us nevertheless that our prayers matter. It makes a difference. Our prayers accomplish something or else what Paul wrote here makes no sense at all. It's just rhetoric and lip service, or rhetoric and lip service. Allow me to point out one more reason Paul prayed as he did. Because yes, we know that Paul believed that prayer matters, certainly. But why? Why did he believe prayer matters? Well, I believe the answer is actually here in our context because Paul was fully convinced of the gospel himself. Paul was fully convinced of the gospel in its entirety. Paul was convinced that the Messiah had come, that he lived a perfect life and purchased complete righteousness before God, that he had completely fulfilled the law, then laid down his life on behalf of his people. He died for their sins, taking their place as the perfect propitiatory sacrifice. Paul believed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, which means beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had accepted the sacrifice, that he saw the sacrifice was good, and that God's people thereby was ju- were justified in the sight of God, past, present, and future. Paul understood that. Therefore, Paul calls out to God as Father. Paul prayed to his Father. In fact, if you look at the very next verse in our text at the beginning of verse 11, Paul starts off that verse by saying, now may our God and Father himself. That's the work of Jesus Christ ultimately applied by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption bringing Paul and all others who place their faith alone in Jesus Christ into his family so that they cry out, Abba, Father. Paul didn't just believe his prayers mattered. He believed That when he prayed, he was praying to his father. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will instead give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Paul was convinced that God was his father. He was also convinced that his prayer was to his father, but his prayer was through Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something we put at the end of our prayers? Do we even understand why we pray that way? It's not just some incantation that made Paul's prayer more powerful. It was a statement of fact. It was the grounds of his confidence that his prayer would be answered in Jesus' name. Not my prayer alone is in Christ, but I am in Christ. I pray to my Father because I am in Jesus Christ. You'll recall the words from 
from our scripture reading, if you have there in your plan of service in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we approach that throne of grace? It's through Christ. It's because we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. And when I pray in the name of Christ, I'm saying that what is his is mine. All of his grace and benefits have actually been bestowed to me because of what he's done. If I believe that, if that is a fact, then I can pray with great confidence. I mean, if you've ever been to a race, what happens when the competitors get closer to the finish line? People start to cry out more and more, go, go, yes, way to go, do it. It gets louder and louder as the runner is obviously going to cross the finish line. The end is in sight. And so, knowing that the author and perfecter of our faith has finished the race ahead of us, the cries of our prayers are even more fervent because we know we're going to finish also. The cries don't die down as you get near the end of the race, but they're more even intense as we recognize that Jesus Christ has gone before us. Because all things belong to him, and all the things that belong to him have been given to us so we can pray with confidence. Paul prayed to his father through Jesus, but also Paul prayed with the Spirit. It's a truly Trinitarian prayer. Every time, every time that Paul uttered a prayer, he truly believed the Spirit was at work in and through his prayers. In fact, Paul would later write to the Christians in Rome that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit was actively working with Paul's prayers to accomplish God's perfect and pleasing will so Paul could plead as earnestly as possible night and day because he knew who he was pleading to, he knew who he was pleading through, and he knew who he was pleading with. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, church, as I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, this, this sermon is part confession. I don't stand before you here as one who prays as he ought. I am guilty. And I, I've been convicted by this passage. The reality is Paul wrote this because he sees prayer differently than I do. But I want to understand prayer like this. I want to be so deeply convicted that my prayers matter that I am driven to my knees more and more often. That I pray more fervently and more persistently because I actually believe what the Bible says. That there are things that do not happen when I do not pray. That there are things that only happen because we do pray. And if we believe that about prayer, we will pray. And so how should we respond to this charge? How should we respond when, when we read these half dozen words or so about prayer? Well, if you were like me and you know that you've not understood prayer in the same way Paul has, what you do is you confess it before the Lord. You repent of that. Because it's nothing short of sin. We have thought wrongly about this and repentance is the right course. 
Repentance is a turning away from our former things, whether it's thought, word, or deed. And so that repentance requires new action. The new action ought to be for all of us a deeper commitment to prayer. Let us pray fervently. Let us pray persistently. Let us pray in a way that brings us together in the end, whether that be the return of Christ or the day that the Lord has number for us. But friends, we must understand and know that prayer matters. I pray that's been your conviction as well as you've heard this. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, you know each of our hearts better than we do. Lord, you know how wrongly we've perceived of the means of grace of prayer. Lord, how wrong we are about what it does, how wrong we are about what it accomplishes. Lord, we ask you to forgive us corporately. We ask you to grant us grace corporately that we be more faithful in coming before you, not only with our petitions, but with our prayers of thanksgiving and adoration and intercession. And not even for just the people in this congregation, but for our brothers and sisters in our community and around the world. That we would seek your face and believe that when we pray, that those prayers matter. That real grace is transferred and brothers and sisters in our community and across the world are made to stand. Lord, we may never fully comprehend how, but you've ordained it to be so. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in prayer. We ask this because we are with Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, the application is very simple. The invitation is very simple. Um, This is primarily for our church members. Would you confess with me your neglect of prayer? Would you repent of your neglect of prayer, and would it compel you to action? with a deeper commitment to prayer. I can't wait to see what God is going to do through this place, through your lives, as we all grow to have a deeper commitment to prayer. Join me this week in asking for that, will you? I love you, church family. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a blessed week.